Our scripture reading uh, is in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 11. Uh, we're uh, going to return back to this chapter uh, in the book of Romans, which uh, can be complex at points, um, uh, but we'll do our best to decipher what the Lord uh, is speaking to us in this passage. So this morning I'm going to be reading from Romans 11, uh, verses 25 uh, to 36. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screens or in your bulletin uh, if you prefer. These are God's word. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins." As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to them, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that uh, it is powerful, that it shapes our hearts and it shapes our lives in ways that we sometimes can't even trace. So we pray that as we look at your scriptures now, uh, that you would speak to us, that you would mold us more into your image, uh, that you would help us to see the gospel more clearly, to see ways to apply it to our lives more clearly, that we may uh, gain a greater understanding of the richness of your character and the beauty of your gospel. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you're, if you're new with us, uh, you'll, you'll be jumping right midstream into a, a look at the book of Romans that we've been uh, talking about in and, in and out really for uh, the past year and a half. Uh, the book of Romans in the New Testament uh, was written to uh, a very small church uh, that was in a very influential city, uh, the city of Rome. And the church was uh, full of both Jews and Gentiles. It was probably majority Gentile. Uh, but there were Jews in this church as well. And they, that might sound like an insignificant detail, but for them, it caused a tremendous amount of controversy. In some ways, it's, it's hard for us to understand uh, their cultural moment, but for them, this discussion that Paul is talking about has uh, utmost importance for them and for their faith. And as many wrestled with it, they had lots of questions, uh, lots of opinions on this controversy. Uh, But some of the questions that they would have asked would be the question, who are God's people? They would have asked the question, who are the promises of God designed for? They would have wrestled with the question of what it means now that Gentiles or non-Jews are experiencing 
the kingdom of God and what that meant for Jewish believers as well. Now, the Apostle Paul uh, was uniquely suited uh, to really have this discussion with this church because Paul himself was ethnically uh, a Jew. But what we also learn from his life is he became the foremost apostle to the Gentile people. He was the one that traveled from city to city, from nation to nation, spreading the message of Jesus Christ. And so these, these middle chapters of, of the book of Romans deal with this question. If God has had such a rich history with the Jewish people, then what does it mean for them and for all of us with the fact that they had largely rejected the message of Jesus Christ? And what does it mean that the Gentile people are now embracing this message of Jesus Christ in remarkable ways? So in terms of answering this kind of theological and cultural question, uh, Paul really tackles three different things. He tackles uh, the idea of the first fruits of Israel, the idea of the hardening of Israel, and then finally, what it means and what all this means in terms of the mind of the Lord. So I'd like to look at those three things really quickly, and the first is, is this idea of the first fruits of Israel. And you get this idea in the verses that are preceding what we just read. We couldn't read the whole passage. But in, in the verse, verses 13 to 24, Paul really tackles this idea by using two really common illustrations to describe the Jewish and Gentile relationship. Uh, the first one we're not going to really talk about, uh, it's in verse 16. He, he compares the nation of Israel uh, to dough, which might seem like a, a bizarre illustration. But he effectively says that Israel is the dough that is offered as the holy first fruits. The second illustration that he uses is one of an olive tree. And this, this one he fills out a lot more uh, in verses 17 to 24. And he uses this illustration because uh, the olive tree was, was really common in the ancient world. And throughout Israel's history, God consistently used this olive tree uh, as an illustration for them and the ideas of faith. And what Paul says here, using this illustration, is that the Gentiles, in some ways, are a branch. A branch that has been grafted into the root of this olive tree that is God's people. So using these two illustrations, Paul comes to the conclusion that the Jewish nation experienced really the first fruits of the story of redemption. And what he means by that is that the Jewish people, they had the law, they had the covenant, they had the promises of God that were given to them. They had this incredibly, incredibly rich history with God. But now what God is doing is he is grafting in all of these other nations to be a part of the family of God. And Paul also argues that this really isn't a new thing. That in some ways, God's plan was always for the nations. But what he's saying is that the Jewish people were, were to be the first fruits of that. They were to be the occasion for God's work among all the nations. And what he means by that 
is the Jewish people were to demonstrate to the nations the great power and love of God, and that the nations looking on were to be jealous of that relationship and, and even desire that relationship for themselves. But what he says is that instead of carrying this message of God to all of these nations, the Jewish people ultimately rejected the message of God in Jesus Christ. And what we see as you read the Gospels is that the majority of the Jewish people wound up in unbelief, rejecting Jesus Christ as Savior. This is why Paul says in verse 20 that the branches were broken off because of unbelief. So when you think about it, all the history, all the covenants, all the law and the promises had all of their climax in the person of Jesus Christ who was born to the Jewish people. And yet, in unbelief, they rejected him, they had him arrested, and eventually they crucified him. And what Paul says is that because of all this, it led to a hardening of Israel. He fleshes this out uh, in verses 25 to 32. If you, if you go back to the Gospels in Luke 14, I think Jesus illustrates this point very clearly in a, a parable. And if you go back to Luke 14, you read uh, the parable of the wedding feast or the parable of a great banquet. And, and the story Jesus tells is of a man who decided to throw a great banquet. And uh, it was going to be a great party, a multi-day banquet. And so what he does is he invites all of his friends and all of his family uh, to be a part of this great banquet. He prepares everything, and, and then when it's time to feast, he sends out his servants to go and gather all of the guests whom he has invited. But as his servants go to each one of the guests, they all give excuses why they can't come to the banquet. And, and, and some of the, the, the excuses are almost comical about how foolish they are. But everyone at the end of the day whom he invited rejected this invitation. And so the servants come back. They tell this, this great banquet holder about the results. And he says, go back out and find the crippled and the lame and the blind and bring them into the banquet so they can enjoy this great feast. And what Jesus is doing is he was illustrating what Paul is talking about right here, that the Jews were offered an invitation to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, but by and large, they rejected it. In unbelief and hardness of heart, they rejected the Savior. And, and so what Paul says is, because of their rejection, now the message of God gets pushed out into the Gentile world. God instead decides to go directly through the ministry of Paul to all of the nations, inviting each and every one of them to a place at God's table. He even, even talks about the hardening of Israel's heart. In some ways, this is a, a challenge for us to even understand. But he's picking up on an Old Testament idea that goes all the way back to the story of Exodus. And if you go all the way back to that story, you see that, that God hardens Pharaoh's heart 
so that the Jewish people, the Israelite people, could experience the freedom of God. And what Paul is saying is that for a time, Israel's heart has now been hardened so that the Gentile nation can now be included in this gospel so that they can experience the freedom of the gospel. Now, you might wonder, has, has Paul written off the Jewish people because of this? And certainly that is not the case. He answers that very directly all throughout the letter because the gospel never writes people off. But just as Israel's relationship with God was to make the other nations jealous, Paul is now hoping that the gospel's work in and among the nations will now have the reverse effect and make the Jewish people jealous. Now, when you hear this word, your tendency is to think of kind of a sinful jealousy, that we kind of covet the things that our neighbors have and all that sort of stuff. But really, this is a holy jealousy. This is a good desire where we see something that someone else has and we desire that thing for ourselves. You see, all throughout the Old Testament history, the Jews were to have such a vibrant relationship with God that all the other nations would look at them and want that thing for themselves. And what Paul is saying here is that now that the Gentiles have that vibrant relationship, now that the power of God is being demonstrated in their midst, Paul hopes that it will now make the Jewish people jealous for that vibrant relationship with God. You see, all in said and done, what Paul is saying is that the faith was to be so powerfully demonstrated in the life of a believer in Jesus Christ that it would become attractive to those who observed it from the outside. And friends, in many ways, the same is true for us today. Because if you are here and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the question you have to ask yourself is this. Does your vibrant relationship with God make other people jealous in a good way? Here's what I mean by that. Do others come to you asking you about the peace that they have observed in your life? Do they see a a community of faith that has been surrounded around you, and do they long for that sense of community for themselves as well? Do they see joy in you? Do they see contentment in your life? Do they see such evidence of God in your life that they want those things for themselves as well? William uh, Barclay, who was a commentator, uh, told the story about a a wartime chaplain uh, and something that happened during a, a particularly violent battle. And he tells a story about a soldier who was wounded in battle and was lying out in the field. Because that soldier was wounded and out in the field, a chaplain crept into the middle of the battle to be with this wounded soldier. The story goes that he stayed with him uh, while all the other troops retreated for safety. The chaplain stayed with him. And in the heat of the day, uh, he gave him water from his own personal canteen, even though it meant that the chaplain 
would be parched with all sorts of thirst. Uh, In the cold of the night, the chaplain uh, would give him his blanket and his clothes in order to keep him warm. And at the end of all this, the, the the wounded man looked up to the chaplain, who he called Father. And he said to the chaplain, he said, Father, are you a Christian? And the father says to him, well, I I try to be. And then said the wounded man, if Christianity makes a man do for another man what you have done for me, then tell me about it because I want it for myself. See, friends, the question we must ask ourselves is, does your faith, does our faith make others jealous in the best of ways. And so for 11 chapters, uh, Paul has been exploring the absolutes of faith in Jesus Christ. He's been uh, expounding the, the theological superstructure of the gospel. He's been wrestling with the depth of sin and God's pursuing grace. He's wrestled with this kind of doctrinal idea of election that God demonstrates his grace in some and demonstrates his wrath in others, the kindness and the severity of God. He's wrestled with the implications of of Jewish rejection and the Gentile conversion. And then we come to verse 33. Which is, which is one of my, the most beautiful transitions of all verses in all of the scriptures. Because we come to verse 33, and then it's almost as if it all becomes too much for the Apostle Paul as he thinks about it all. Because he becomes absolutely overwhelmed by the mind of the Lord. He becomes overwhelmed with the fact that he is God and that we are not. Listen to these words, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I think what you're observing here is a progression in Paul's heart as he thinks about these things. I think he thinks about all these things in the first 11 chapters, and then he's immediately overcome with amazement at the sheer awesomeness of God. And that amazement pushes him to faith. And then that faith winds up pushing him to praise. So let's think about his amazement here for just a minute, because for Paul, all of this theology winds up turning into poetry. All the doctrine that he's been exploring for 11 chapters has laid him flat on the ground. His jaw is literally hanging on the floor as he contemplates the greatness of the gospel. He's amazed that God would send his son, Jesus Christ, to save sinners. He's amazed that that our sins are given to Christ and his goodness and his righteousness are given to us at the moment of salvation. 
He's amazed that nothing could ever separate us from the love of God, that we are safe and secure in Christ, and that all of this is because of God's grace. And he is so amazed that he can hardly even hold it in anymore. He feels like he might explode with amazement over what God has done. But that amazement pushes him in a direction, and it pushes him towards the direction of faith. Because faith always embraces not only the greatness of God, but also the mystery of God. Because faith recognizes that he is God and we are not. It recognizes that we don't have all the answers, nor does God owe us all of those answers. It reminds us that we don't control him. Instead, we are called to rest in his control. So friends, in faith, we need to embrace the fact that our limited and finite minds cannot grasp the intricacies of God's purpose and God's plan. Faith trusts in the fact that he has all things figured out. Uh, if you know me, you know that, that I'm the youngest of uh, three children, and uh, my brother and sister were both significantly older than me. So it always felt like growing up that I had four parents uh, rather than two parents and a brother and sister. And uh, so I've spent my entire life always wanting to be older than I really am. And I can remember as a kid, uh, I would have lots of questions for my family, and uh, they would give me very short and definitive answers. I'd have a question, and they'd say yes or no. And I, of course, wanting to be older, would always want to know the why that was behind the yes and the no. So I'd ask them, well, why is this? Why is this? And what would they always say to me? They would always say, you're too young to understand, or you'll understand when you get older. And I hated Whenever they said that, it drove me crazy because they weren't trying to be cruel or exclusionary, but they knew that my finite kid mind couldn't quite understand the reasoning behind all of life's realities. And of course, now as a parent, I start saying the same things to my own kids, not to be cruel or exclusionary, but there's just certain things they, in their kid minds, can't quite understand. Well, friends, why do we think that it is any different with God? In fact, it is all the more true when it comes to our relationship with God. Because the scriptures tell us that God is eternal, incorruptible, unchanging, and constant. Scriptures tell us that he is beyond time, he is beyond material existence, and beyond physical space. It tells us that he is omniscient and omnipresent, all-knowing and always present. It tells, them, it tells us that he is wisdom and knowledge in its complete and utter perfection. It tells us that he is the source of all things and in him all things to hold together. And guess what? We are none of those things. We are none of them. Why would we think that we can figure out his ways? They are unsearchable. 
fact, Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 55, For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. One author said this, I cannot grasp thy mind, but with my whole heart I trust in thy love. You see, amazement ought to push us towards faith. Amazement gives birth to this thing called faith, and when faith is followed to its extreme, it gives birth to praise. It tells us that praise is the only necessary and natural response to the greatness of God, and it reminds us that we cannot divorce our theology from our praise, nor can we divorce our praise from our theology. So friends, let me ask you this. Have you been amazed by the character and the work of God? Do you observe with awe the power of creation and the history of redemption? Does your amazement translate into faith? Do you trust that he is God and that you are not? And if so, then is your life a life of praise? Do you seek to live for his glory rather than your own? Amazement, faith, and praise. This week I I, I read a a story in a book I'm reading um, that was uh, written in 2012 uh, by sports illustrator, uh, writer David Epstein. And he told the story uh, about a, a young woman named uh, Rhiannon Hill. And uh, Rhiannon Hill was a, a, a distance runner for the University of Oregon. And uh, after she graduated from, uh, uh, from college, she went on to become a, a marathoner and was quite successful in her marathon career. But after she'd retired from uh, being a professional runner, she uh, was, was a runner in her hobby. She ran twice a day and all this sort of stuff, so very physically fit. And he tells a story about at one point she was uh, on, the vac- on a vacation with her family in Costa Rica. And uh, she was at one of those beautiful secluded beaches in Costa Rica. And she went swimming with her five-year-old son, whose name was Jillian. And then tragically, while they were swimming, uh, they were swept out into the ocean uh, by a riptide. And they realized that they were in a really bad situation, that they weren't going to be able to make it back to shore and, and sadly, there was no one on shore to rescue them. And uh, as they're struggling out in the ocean, uh, all of a sudden, uh, two surfers come out and, and notice what is happening. And, and I'll read the story picked up here. By the time two teenage surfers spotted them and managed to paddle to their rescue, Hull, who was a wiry 5'2 fit marathoner at the age of 33, had been holding her son aloft in the water for nearly half an hour. He was standing on mommy, he later recalled. And and Epstein writes, As the two surfers paddled closer, Hull's head was periodically dipping beneath the waters as she struggled to keep Julian up. They arrived just as she launched the boy upward one last time. And one of the surfers grabbed Jillian and draped him on the surfboard. 
then turned back to Hull, but she never resurfaced again. Friends, what Paul has been telling us in the book of Romans is that you and I were drowning in sin and death. But what he marvels at is the fact that Christ came in love to rescue us. But our rescue meant that he would need to be overcome by sin and death. He would need to drown in the wrath of God in order for you and I to be saved. And friends, for Paul, he was perpetually amazed and astounded at this fact. And so should we. It should feed our faith and it should stoke our worship. Let's pray.